out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. And this week, it's going to be the turn of the Seattle-based slightly grunge band. It is the one and only Bam Bam. Uh, because I recently spoke to their one-time bass player, Scott Ledgerwood, to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Um, the band were, yes, kind of renowned for many reasons, one being the fact that uh, they had a lead singer tied, called Tina Bell, who had a particular prominence in the world of rock and roll and grunge, for many reasons that you're going to find out more about. But anyway, they're an 80s based band, and there is a very good website that I'll include in the notes below. Bam Bam. Buttocks Productions, indeed. Anyway, look, this is with me and Scotty, and um, after several minutes of casual but interesting chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. It's Scott. It's not Scotty, by the way. So um, anyway, Scott, take it away. Well, actually, you know, you hit on a few uh, yourself. I used to... Um a lot of the glam. Yeah, I grew up in a wee, small, uh, kind of a weird farm town. It was odd that, that that music even found its way out here, but Sweet, T-Rex, you know, Alice Cooper, Iggy, all that stuff, and of course, Bowie. I had a, I, I'm going to date myself here. I had an eight-track of Hunky Dory, man. <laughs> That's how old I am. But um, glam yes. and butt rock mostly out here. A lot of Steppenwolf and Rush and Zeppelin and lots of Black Sabbath and Steppenwolf and but you know there was uh, there was still that the, the the fact that this is a wee a community of farmers and um, um, we got a couple singers from this town James from um, Moral Crux and Romeo Void Deborah Isle they're both from here so I don't know how the hell that happened maybe it's because we're too close to Hanford yes whereabouts in America <laughs> the was this in Richmond. so is this on um, the west well this is in the middle of Washington State is where I'm at now. I left Seattle when uh, my wife, Sandy Scannell, retired a few years ago, and we decided to get out of town and move out here in the desert near our mums and built a little place literally on the edge of nowhere. It's, uh, um, I have coyotes and uh, hawks and snakes for, uh, for neighbors. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> at, least you cool, do, at least you don't have it, a huge vet bill. Lots of veteran, a lot of horses out here too, and that sort of thing. So what's but, yeah, your it's in the middle of the Washington State, about maybe well three hours from Seattle, perhaps. Right, blimey! Because I we used to yeah. sort of love coming. We we love the sunshine. Well, we love the deserts basically. So we'd fly into Vegas right. and then do a road trip around all those kind of states and places, like going to Death Valley and the Grand Canyon and white sands and and those kind of places so that's kind of the only kind of things that i'm familiar with and then obviously it's amazing his, the differences in this state you know jack and dino come over at our place a couple months back and he'd been here before but but not to my place yet and he was you know to me it's just yeah, it's a bunch of scrub but he's still fascinated to sell like boy look at this it wasn't forever yes yeah, look at those. <laughs> amazing amazing but so, uh, yeah we you know, moved to seattle when i was in my late teens and you know, pretty much grew, finished growing up there and then came back here when I retired to take care of me, Ma. Yes, well, this is, this is a, what we... She's a big Bam Bam fan, by the way. Oh, good. Well, <laughs> I have to say, it's yeah. Yeah, the, the music is amazing. But look, so then, so what were your parents? Were they, did they have any kind of musical kind of influence on you oh. at this stage? Oh, very, very much. My, uh, well, I'd call them uh, folkabillies, I guess. They were kind of rockabilly folkies, you know, they were like 
Well, Johnny Cash was a god in my house. My, my daddy used to even cut his hair the same. And he was into like, you know, ventures and mamas and papas and Chet Atkins and but, <clears throat> excuse me, early Bob Dylan, Dwayne Eddy, you know, but he also, you know, the coasters and the platters and some of those cool bands. I actually got contacted by the coasters management uh, about a year ago and it made me a very flattering offer to help, you know, with their final, the, the, I guess there's one original coaster left. And he's a bit of a, he's a bit of a kid. The guy's got some, some uh, bit of a spirit still going on in him. But my daddy, uh, yeah, big time on Johnny Cash. And he used to, uh, they allowed my bands to rehearse at our house all those years. And that is amazing. It really, it, it is truly amazing. I mean, I'm going, yeah, sounds good, guys. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> well, his parents used to come to our shows. That, that used to strike me even a little bit more odd that they would actually come to some of these crazy clubs a couple of times that we'd play at. And I was yeah. pretty impressed. Her, her mom in particular, Odessa, is an absolute sweetheart. I, you know, her and I are very, very close. She's That's mom, Odessa, actually, first. Um, she and I are concerned and has been for as long as I've known her. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool family. Very, very tight with Tina's family. Did you have any kind of brothers or sisters that had an influence on your musical, you know, path as well? Uh, well, yes and no. There's other professionals in my family. My brother Al, younger brother Al and his son were actually in Napalm Beach briefly towards the end and played a lot with Chris Newman and, uh, oh, in the Newman Experience and um, uh, what was the other one? Flower, Snowbud and the Flower People. But Napalm Beach, but a huge, huge influence on Bam Bam and the Northwest. My sister's one of the, she's a Christian rocker, a Mary Lifflebind. And, you know, our record company actually puts her out on tour and pays for stuff. Yeah. Oh, I tell you. <laughs> Christian, I'm on the wrong label. Yes. We had a very musical family. You know, my brother was a uh, drummer. I, I've only played with like three drummers in 40 years, <laughs> one of which is Brother Al. And uh, he was with a few bands. He was in Shiny Things and stuff. And like, you know, his, my uh, nephew was with the Killers. Uh, oh, that was that guy, Ron Story and the Hounds or something like that. He was one of the Hounds. Um, he, he's, he's the guitarist, backup singer, the kid with the beautiful old SG. That's my, that's my nephew, Nigel, if you see the video on YouTube. Yes. Pretty cool. That's um, amazing. I can't remember the name of the song. Uh, for the ones that week or something like that. But yeah, that's my nephew playing the SG. So yeah, musical family, but uh, we sort of influenced one another, I would imagine, you know, did a little bit of a, everybody be listening to something a little different. And I've often said that Bam Bam was like a potpourri of debris when it comes to our influences, you know, it was all over the fucking map from Frank Sinatra to Aretha Franklin, Prince to The Clash. We're probably the, I was recently said, we're about the only band that put Black Sabbath, Black Flag and Black Uhuru on the same level of coolness, you know. God, well, I have yeah, to say that I say no, that's a very cool lineup of uh, bands, begin, you know, with the word black beginning, actually, because I guess my well, inter interestingly enough, my brother, he was um, seven years older than me. He was into prog rock, but he had two albums that also had a huge influence, Deep Purple and also Black Sabbath. And um, and then years later in the 80s, I was obsessed with John Peel and the John Peel show. And he used to play a lot of that, uh, you know, roots reggae stuff. So Black Uru became one of those bands that um, we all grew to love for lots of reasons. So um, I think they I'm also had... I think they also had Sly and Robbie one time on the rhythm section, which had a huge impact. Yeah, they did. I, I was lucky enough to see what I consider to be uh, the greatest lineup. You know, when they still had Michael Rose singing and Sly and Robbie on the rhythm, it was incredible. 
it was like the greatest chest massage I'd ever had. Yes. You know, it really I... was. It was absolutely remarkable. It truly was. We, uh, we were about six, seven rows to the front. It was hot as hell. It was, you know, it was one of these, um, festivals where you pay five bob and you can see like 50 second bands. It was pretty cool. Yeah. We had, uh, Nina Hagen, Steve Ray Vaughan, Black Uhuru, Mala Poets. And there's some, there's a lot of variety going on. It was a great, uh, great day. No, that Black is, Uhuru, that is, oh my God. They were good. But, but in the 80s, Sly and Robbie used to do something called the Taxi Gang, and they used to sort of go and be three mm-hmm. and a half hours on stage providing the rhythm section mm-hmm. and the band. And then they would have different singers come in and do in their kind of, I suppose, 40, 40 50 minute slots, which was perfect. So you'd have people like yeah. Gregory Isaacs or Half Pint or Inner Kamosi. Mm-hmm. Um, there was Yellow Man. You know those guys. <laughs> yes, there was Maxi Priest as well, and they would they would often do. I, I mean, they did several tours of the UK during the eighties. I do remember them, yeah, coming coming round, and they would often just have three front singers who would do the business. But and also yeah. that was the time when you know you could smoke in an, in the auditorium, and um, it was just hugely. Yeah, yeah. It was a fog of drugs, really. Let's face it. it was Seattle was sort of that way in the eighties. There was there was a variant of scenes going on and. When I kind of pulled out for a little while in the mid later eighties, Reggae was one of the places where I found solace. And I saw like um when I met the Mighty Diamonds and Israel Vibrations and Muta Baruka. I saw Muta Baruka at a small bar in Ballard, for fuck's sake. <laughs> that was pretty cool. He was actually uh, astonishing. Uh, you know, Lynn Creasy Johnson, Defenders, uh Culture. Uh, reggae in Seattle was really, really big. The Wailing Souls broke up, and a couple of them ended up in Seattle, picked up a couple more guys, started this band called The Defenders, and man, they were outstanding. Chant down Babylon, a 12-inch of that still somewhere around here. Yes, Great I band. could imagine. Really, really, really good. Yeah, it was a good production. I loved that scene, and I really enjoyed There was also people like Aswad, Misty and Roots, Burning Spear. There was those kind oh, yeah. of... Those oh, sort of bands yeah. as well, which which did well. And I, I was really obsessed. And then it became kind of gangster reggae, ragga, I think it was called. And, yeah, um, yeah. You know, I, I was more the Rudy guy, the 70s and the heavy dub stuff, you know, and the, you know, the throb and, you know, the BS. I love the fact that the BS was all full on. <laughs> Always dug that shit, you know. Guys like yes. Carly Barrett and, you know, uh, Chris Meredith and, you know, Sugar Minot and those guys. and. God, fantastic. Yeah. It was nice. Half I... it, was, it blew my mind. I and mean, he just absolutely knocked me out. It was, you know, it was one of the, uh, I think it was one of those sun flash things. And we went there to see uh, Sugar and, uh, oh, God, there was somebody else on the bill. But Half Pint comes out there and just absolutely destroyed everybody. It was just like, oh, my God. The energy he had was beyond belief. He'd flip his head back, kick his dreads back, frontwards over him face again. It was just, it was outstanding. It was. Toots and the Maytals, too. It was another one that was a whole that old bastard getting that energy still, man. Yeah, so well, yeah, yeah, reggae in the eighties in Seattle was almost more prevalent than the grungy punk thing. It was very much uh, almost a little of this and a half a dozen of the other kind of a thing. Yeah, it was a glorious. I'm always period. searching, so I. Good stuff. It was a good time to explore. Really well, we were, we were also lucky. I don't know if you had the same, but we had Green Sleeves and Trojan Records that just brought out so mm-hmm. much good stuff. And then, yeah, once you discovered yeah. Greg, Gregory Isaacs, Dennis Brown, and then, you know, um, what's Augustus Pablo and, um, yeah, Lee Scratch Perry. It was. Hell yeah, you, you, you mentioned oh. Gregory earlier, too. Yeah. Yeah. I know, and Night Nurse. King Tubby Touch. Yes, there was night. Uh, night nurse was the album that you know seemed to be a big one in this country. So um, 
It was glorious. It was glorious. I know. So talking yeah. of bass players. So yes, you were. So when did you, you know, think, mm-hmm. right, that's it. I'm going to pick up a bass. Well, I started playing when I was really a little guy. I mean, I started on guitar. I mean, you know, we always would grab the uh, broom and a bat and strum along to the Beatles or whatever. And <laughs> my parents were very, very cool. I had a acoustic guitar when I was about four, maybe three, maybe eight, nine or ten. And then they got me a Telecaster. First guitar I ever had was a Telecaster. And, you know, we weren't exactly, you know, batting the wall. <laughs> Not quite uh, dirtbag poor either, but I was quite surprised to get me a proper guitar. It gave me a good start. It really did. Yes. <laughs> but having that kind of support from me, Ma and Pa, uh, made all the difference. You know, I mean, everybody in the family sang. A couple of us were professionals. My mom briefly, but for the most part, it was, you know, just anything goes, you know, from country to, to metal. Amazing. It was a lot of fun. But as far as playing stuff, I started on the guitar. Then I got in a band with another kid. Well, I'd like to tell it, we got in a fight actually outside the store. And then the guy who broke it up was friends with both of our fathers. And he kind of, hey, you guys should be pals. I happen to know that, you know, your dad, you play guitar, you play guitar. But we're like, oh, really, you do? Well, hey, what do you know? He knew two car. He knew two chords. I knew three. Suddenly, we both knew five. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> but uh, a little while later, an older guy joins up. So now we got three guitars, and I'm the youngest of the three. And uh, guess what? Yeah, you're the bass player. <laughs> it was a good, it was a fortuitous move because then I started looking at other bass players who, you know, everybody from Charlie Manus to Getty Lee, Chris Squire, and uh, God, you know, whoever. Uh, I just it suddenly it became a new instrument for me. And I started looking at some of the, like McCartney's licks, the stuff that he would do um, that was kind of hidden in the old mixes. And listen to it like, well, that bastard actually knows how to play. Oh, yeah. So, yes. yeah, I like the bass because I appreciated it to a different level. That's why I liked reggae so much and some of the prog bands, you know. And I used to do the Lenny chord thing <laughs> at least one of Bam Bam's on the uh, show, What You Know. I'm playing rhythm guitar on a Rickenbacker bass on that song, kind of AKA Lenny, uh, Hawk Windy, whatever. Yes. Well, Tommy says that we were the only Americans who ever knew about Hawk Wind, and I think he's right. <laughs> I don't know what the hell happened there. They were a great band for that music, but uh, America just didn't seem to get it. Well, that's interesting because Hawkwind came out of that kind of London scene in the 70s, you know, squats and free festivals. Oh, big, yeah, yeah, and then, the Spaceman, Ritual. <laughs> yeah, and um, I mean, Love obviously there was, there was Silver Machine, but there was kind of like their concerts were all seen by all the punk people, you know, and, and you know, various bands, yeah. post-punk people. You know, everyone went to see a Hawkwind. Seeing Hawkwind in this country was a sort of rite of passage, a bit like going to Glastonbury Festival. You know, you kind of had to do it yeah, and, yeah. and uh, experience the full-on sort of madness and sound. And I know, yeah, yeah they, they were just one it's of those bands. That live was so different than record, you know. It's an experience in and of itself, didn't want it? Yes. That's something America never quite got. Like I said, they had the California Brainstorm uh, tour about 73 or so. Uh, now that, you know, fortunately got recorded because it's a, it's quite, for live albums, it's one of my favorites. And God knows there's a buttload of Hawkwind live out there. There's a lot. Yeah, they were sort of like the, the cool Grateful Dead. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Grateful Dead, but my uh, folks you, used to be into the dead. I kid you. Sorry, Ma. <laughs> God, American Beauty. We loved it, and Working Man's Dead. Yeah, they? yeah. They had their moments, yeah, yeah, but she's I have to say, Ripple. they're beautiful. Oh God, yes. Cassidy. That was the song I used mm. to love that they did. Cassidy about Jack. I think it was about. Um, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. That the character. It was who, something that finds itself into your music. You never know. You know, some I was uh, 
talking about Jefferson Airplane a while back. Everybody thinks, oh, somebody to love. Saying, no, screw that. Put on Crown of Creation. Listen to the guitar work and that shit. Um, yeah, yeah. Yes. That's all. Folks talking about, oh, all grunge is beginning. I get so sick of that fucking argument. But, you know, there's one of them right there. You, you want one another woman? There you go. Further than Neil Young, go to Jefferson Airplane's Crown of Creation 68. And I'm sure there's plenty earlier than that, too, but that's just, you know, yet another, you know, cog into the wheel. Yes, I know. Right. You must, <laughs> be, being living where you have been living or are living now, you must occasionally hum the uh, lyrics to Have You Seen the Stars Tonight, which is one of those favorite. I think it's Jefferson, uh, that might have been Starship, actually, but I used to love that song, Have You Seen the Stars Tonight. It was one of those. It was a cosmic moment. It wasn't punk, but it was fun. But um, but talking of that that Hawkwind concert or those that tour, that must have that must have been around the time when Lemmy gets kicked out of the band, isn't it? Yeah, he was. Well, he was too. What I remember reading when he was saying how uh, hypocritical it was, they'd give him shit because he was doing speed while they was chomping on acid, you know, going on about Mother Nature. Saying, like, wait a minute, you know, uh, what's the difference there, really? I think they were also annoyed because when Silver Machine came out, he had just joined relatively. I mean, he didn't write a song or nothing like that, but none of them, for some reason, could sing it, which puzzles me. It's not exactly like an erotic melody in there, but he was uh, tickled Lemmy because uh, he sin- ends up singing the damn song, not having written it, and yet when they come on the cover of, oh, God, was it Emmy, New Music Express, or yes. whatever, the cover of your rock mag favorite, is there a band? No, it's just a picture of Lemmy by himself and Lon's only been in a band for a few months and they got pretty bent about that apparently. But Lemmy found a bit of a chuck out of it. Yes, and I think um <laughs> Dave, Dave Brock Dave Brock needed to have a thought. Yeah, Lemmy, I think it was it was the fact that there was two camps really. Well, you know, there were awful lot of drugs, but there were two different types of tribes and drugs mm. going on. So um seems to be kind of an unfortunate combination, you know. I mean, yes. no, I, I'm from a I'm from a city that has a giant needle um, as its city symbol. So, yeah, what a surprise! We got lots of junkies. <laughs> yes. I um I say that glibly because heroin wasn't most of our thing. You know, not all of us anyway. Yes, I think. Well, that None was always was the thing that that, uh, that was what Lemmy was particularly angry about. He he was um, very intolerant. He loved drugs, but he hated heroin. So I think he um I think he lost. Yeah. A few very close friends and a girlfriend. Um, yeah, which, so have which, I. As a matter of fact, um, so that was one of um, one of our own. In fact, in Bam Bam. Yes, so, which yeah, is always I've a kind of seen that a couple of times. I've seen him survive it too. I have a dear friend who, uh, uh, I got nine years. I think he survived and and managed to get the hell off it. It's like well, well done. <laughs> it's impressive. You know, I, I I quit drinking to support a brother. Who then started drinking again, the little prick. But, you know, to me, it's like, you got to be, you know, your mindset for where you want to be or what you're going to do and all that kind of shit. And some people kind of give in or give up. Others kind of just stop back and, you know, take a step back and like, okay, there's only half of us left. Maybe one or two should remain till the story or <laughs> grandchildren or something like <laughs> that. Yeah, it so does get cons- I, I, you know, and, and no offense to these guys, I love them to do. <laughs> this is a tongue-in-cheek remark that I'm often making. Like, how the hell is it that Green River's about the only band without any missing members? <laughs> <laughs> Those lads love to drink. You know, I mean, God bless them. They're good guys. They really are. And friends with a few of them. And they've been yes. there from the beginning and before, and they're still there now. And what's worse, or not worse, <laughs> 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 Guardian Swift. No, what's odd is. 
those buggers are all still alive. Damn it. Almost every band I know has at least one or two key components missing. You know? I yes. used to joke about, yeah, Dad, eventually they're going to run out of guys and they'll have to pay attention to you guys. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, my yeah, cheeky, cheeky little chap. But then when... Oh, did, yeah, yeah, yeah. When did you sort of, because I have no idea. When, oh, yeah, when was your first gig or what was your first gig that you went to and your first album you bought? Um, with Bam Bam, you mean, and all that? No, been, with, um, with, no you, you, you was a sort of punter. What was your first gig that you went to? Oh, ah, my first show I ever saw. Um, well, one of the very first was Black Sabbath. During about Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, I was about 14, turning 15. Me and my friend Frank Miles. Hey, Frank, if you're still alive. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that was absolutely magnificent. I had Ozzy Osbourne about one meter in front of me, um, blasting me in the face with this little strobe light thing. And, you know, I'm just this teenage little shit runt. I, uh, I was in heaven, man. It was one of the greatest moments of my life. To this day, I can actually still remember that night. Yes. We got That's in trouble it. with the police coming home. And, you know, fortunately, they uh, just took our beer and let us go. So, hey, that's cool. That sounds like a fair trade. Throw, throw away our weed, take our beer, and let us go. All right, bye. <laughs> yeah, Black Sabbath and uh oh god, who else was it back then? Um I saw Tommy Bolin with Rush about two weeks before he died. And we thought, what the hell's with this guy? This is kinda cool but kinda weird and two weeks later he's dead. But yeah, Kiss. Uh, you know, Alex Cooper, like I said, and any of the any of the glamours. I was really sad that, you know, Mark Bolin went and died before I could see him. Yes. My wife, Sandy Scandals. She used to wear a bracelet. I don't think I ever saw her without it. When she'd shower, Mrs. T Rex <laughs> <laughs> in high school. Yeah, I've known my wife since we were kids. Yes. But yeah, it was mostly like I say, butt rock and glam. Did and you then it just sort of all just it, it all just fell apart so fast? You know, it was like, I, I think it was Kiss Destroyer that ruined me for mainstream rockers. You know, I liked them in their first three albums, and I saw them at that time. You know, around uh, Hotter Than Hell. And then they put out the stir, and I thought, what the hell is this? Oh, yeah, screw this shit. <laughs> but, you know, then it was starting to look back. I started looking backwards at stuff like, you know, the Yardbirds with Page and Beck, you know, and uh, Steppenwolf, and, of course, Hendrix, and, you know, Sly and the Family Stone and shit like that. Even yes. some of the weird jazz stuff like, you know, Charlie Mingus and stuff. I was just so damn hungry for something new. And I had a friend, uh, he uh, had a roommate who was really artistic, cool guy. And he thought he was going to freak me out because, you know, they're into the butt rock. And I'm going to play him this new punk rock, see what he does. So he started playing me X-ray specs and the Clash. And I'm like, oh, my God, what is this guy must have? This is so fucking cool. And he's like, oh, oh, you like it? Oh, well, okay, yeah, here, here's some more. Check out this pill band. And, yeah, I like that. Right, yes. The, uh, metal, metal Box. Holy shit, I still like that album. I don't care much for his politics, but I do like the metal box. Yeah. Yes. Well, Big influence on me, man. It's always, it's always, always actually more than Johnny, but yeah. Well, a few years later, I, I loved the Smiths and again, had a sort of certain issue or problem somehow. It's just my problem, but you know, the, the sort of the, the lead singer starts saying things that you feel like, mm, not quite sure if I can, it, it's kind of very well, uncomfortable. Yeah. It's kind of uncomfortable listening to the music. For controversy's sake. You know, mm-hmm. that's what bothers me about, uh, and I don't mean to single Morrissey out personally, but why not? Let's pick on him behind then. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes, you know, you wear your politics on your sleeve, it gets a little hollow, you know? I mean, it's, it's just, and speaking of earlier, Peel and Hollow, John Peel Sessions of the Smiths, Hot Fella Hollow, is the best thing they ever damn did, ever. Yes. I should say that. Throwing it out there. There you go. 
<laughs> no, no, that was that was the album because yeah. the first, the, the, to be honest, the first album, just the production was terrible and it sounds terrible, you know, really cheap. I thought and, that about and, you too. I, yeah. I, I couldn't figure out why are they making such a big deal about this band. <laughs> yes, but then, then the the those John the, the uh, BBC sessions with for John Peel and Kitchens oh, yeah. and were just on a different level, and there was suddenly a bit of vitality and. And to be honest, they're even better than the Meet His Murder album, but that's just, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I think so too. I truly meant that. I think the John Peel sessions were, uh, first of all, he is a, a god of an engineer. There's certain men who have, and women, with these magic ears, and I don't get it. You know, I've been around a show more life. I'm supposedly technically a producer by credentials, but I, you know, I'm, I'm not Jack. I'm not Tommy. I, I don't have those magical ears that these guys have. I haven't got much hearing left as it is. You know, and it astonishes me. It really does. You know, Jack and Dino particularly, he's just incredible what he can do with so little. And yet, without overdoing it, you know, I hate specterizing music. You know what I mean? Overproducing it. He manages to keep it raw and live and vibrant without it sounding flat. You know, without just overproduction. It just... It just feels alive. Yes. Quite a fun guy to work with, too. It's an honor, and it, it, well, you get the results, and he's very fun. It's always good. Very yes. Cool so then, oh, oh just you briefly. You check out some of his own work, too. Oh, sorry, what, go ahead. Yeah, well, which ones do you recommend? Oh, I'd check out the song Shadow Play, or Shadow World. It's one of his latest. It's about coming to terms with uh, being old like us. Hey, middle-aged, you got one foot in, one foot out. Yeah, and uh, him and his wife's uh, got a band that he also helps out. And uh, um, Mia, she's a very, very cool lady. MKG Ultra, they call it. Oh, blimey. God, I have to make notes here. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Just just before we leave the glam world or go back to glam, did you ever see David Bowie live in that period? I did. Oh, yes. Bam Bam went as a group. It was one of our group go-outs. And it was spectacular. Yeah. Um, Carlos Alomar, man. Oh, yeah. I meant to play. It was great because it was the Bowie Greatest Hits Tour, as it were. It was like the uh, E3, I believe. And he was talking about it was the last time I'm going to play this or that. And he played um, Life on Mars from the old Hunky Dory that I earlier mentioned. And I just was, oh, God. Granted, that's a rather, eh, not the best of songs, but it has a personal memory for me. And to hear him do it live was just very, very cool. Oh God, amazing! Yes, I know that was. Um, so that must have been the early nineties, I guess that would have been. If you no, it was eighty three. Oh, eighty three. We saw Bowie. We saw Bowie. Uh, no, we saw Peter Gabriel Wednesday night, and then Thursday we, um, Bowie was in town. It was a busy week that one. That was a yeah. good week. So that was a serious moonlight tour. Bowie back to back, and yeah. it was yeah. The serious moon. Yes, though that was a good one. There was Earl Slick on guitar as well, wasn't there? So. I do yeah, it was they were the last minute replacement for Stevie uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Oh, but Carlos Alomar is what rounded out for me. Uh, I really enjoyed his work, you know, from the Berlin years and such. And yeah, yes. it, was, it was really cool. Amazing, back yes. in anger and all that. Hell yeah! Oh God, yeah, he used to open with that actually. Yes, it was a cool dude. So then, I mean, when so did you leave school at sixteen or did you keep on at college? No, I went back. I didn't go to college till later um, in life, which is probably a good thing. Cause I barely made it through high school and went to college at 35 in culinary school and about 50 for business and in sound engineering. And 
Jesus, buried me through high school. When I'm old, I get 4.0s and get on the Dean's dork list. You know? <laughs> hey, he's one of them smart guys. Yeah. <laughs> I got a kick out of that, though. It was pretty funny. Yes, absolutely. It was, it was, it was, I went to the same school. In fact, uh, oh, God, Matt Cameron, Chris Cornell, uh, me. Oh, God, what's his name from the uh, second coming? It was like they thought they were just, well, oh, the rock star college, you know, shoreline up in the north of Seattle. Excellent. That was uh, that was. It is a good school, but yeah, a lot of fun there. Yeah. Somebody talking about. Oh, I had to do doing a seminar and talk about what's it like to be a rock store. Coming up one word, I said boredom, and they they couldn't believe it. I showed a picture of me lying on a pile of of cases and and you know drum bits backstage waiting to go on again. And our uh, roadie says, "Hey, Scotty," and I kind of huh, and he takes the picture and. It, yes. it's, that's the road, right? It was, we called it roadkill when we posted it. And there you go, there's your rock and roll lamb sitting around waiting for shit, waiting for your sound check, waiting for your time to go on, waiting to get to the damn next place, you know. And then you play for 30 minutes, and, ah, and then you wait for another 20 hours. And, ah, shit. Well, and I do remember, I think... He loved me on the road because I'd make a stop and get, you know, a, a bag of salad or some applesauce so we could take a crap more than once a week, you know. <laughs> How many hamburgers you need in one cab trip? <laughs> Let's grab a bag of salad, you guys. Yeah, just just full of some greens, maybe, huh? Yes. Well, there you go. Good for your gut health. But also, I remember Charlie Charlie Watts sort of condensing his kind of career, how many hours he must have spent actually doing something for the Rolling Stones. And it it wasn't an awful lot, really, when he when he looked at it. It was a lot of sitting around waiting for that thing to happen. So, um. I guess yeah. you have to have patience. But at the same yeah. time, the rest of us, we have to wait for the damn drummers with their, uh, you know, sound check. And yeah, Bell, Tina Bell hated studios. Oh, I would God. imagine so. I don't like them. Tommy, Tommy got erect the moment he walked into them. He bloody loved gear and equipment and, and all the signals and sounds. And I went to engineer school, as I told them on the first day, but, oh, you got to stand up and say, why are you here? I said, so I can understand what everybody's been talking about around me for the last 25 years. Seriously, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got production credits, and I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I just say, yeah, make the bass louder there. Oh, I'm a producer. <laughs> yes. The engineers are the gods. Producers just say, yeah, turn that up, do that. Yeah. Guys like, yeah, Jason Lackey and them there, yeah. Interesting. But it's, look, it's, it's sometimes fun. Okay. I won't say I hate them. Eric, they can be okay. Yes. But you have to have patience, don't you? Um, <laughs> a lot of patience. You. But then, how does, so, so for us in, in the UK, you know, like, I suppose politically, it's kind of quite an interesting time. We had the punk world, then there was that post-punk. But in, in politics, you know, 79, Thatcher gets in. In the UK, we have, you know, like, there's the Falkland War, there's Green and Common, there's kind of the miners' strike. There's a huge amount of unemployment, which isn't quite the same in other countries. And um, a lot of kids are just unemployed. They're, you know, they're, they're claiming dole money or job seekers' allowance. So that's, I think, one of the reasons that there, there are so many indie bands in the 80s. So what was it like for you during that sort of late 70s, early 80s? Because I guess you would have had the, the Reagan years and Reaganomics. Well, we had... Um... Uh, more of a social upheaval going on than, say, Britain, where yours was um, economically based, ours was more shallow. Uh, oh, people my. trying to wedge their way over others, you know. The, um, we used to make this, there was a joke about, you know, the the conservatives want justice, just us. You know, it was <laughs> that kind of a thing. Yes. And, uh, you know, Reagan years were, 
Well, we went from uber liberal to uber not liberal. And in hindsight, when you look at the Trump, oh my God, Reagan looks uh, kind of choir boy like, don't he now? You know, this is I, true. I, I take back this. I wore I wore an anti Reagan band button for two years straight on my little leather jacket called I Ain't I Am Rebel. <laughs> but you know, I didn't ever write no song about him. Bam Bam wasn't very political. Calvin Sick was far more political. The later, you know, band. Yeah, you know, we had uh, I'm an American or um, fucking. Oh, excuse me, I can't fucking say that. But anyway, blinking <laughs> lies and uh, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of funny. I have a couple of conservative friends who would say they'd like that. So you ain't never listened to that song. <laughs> you, you think it's cool because I need Statue of Liberty on the cover, but uh, yeah, wave those flags high. It helps to cover your eyes. Like it says on the bumper sticker, this lands for you and I. Oh, yeah. God, <laughs> they don't write them like that nowadays, but do we they? Were, um, we were, um, Seattle was a fun place to be at that time. It was sort of this little oasis in the middle of a uh, chaotic change seattle's kind of isolated and as such becomes its own sort of uh persona i guess one could say that's why especially in the early 80s the scene was ridiculously open we had everything from quirky uh, kind of we had our own version of delta five we had our own gang of four we had our own you know <laughs> you know what i mean it's like these little independent visions that would pop up and all were accepted on the same level you know, you could see the farts and student nurse on the same bill or, um, God, I don't know, just, you know, miserable, visible targets. We used to call them miserable Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> they were sisters in Argon a lot. They're really a good group, though. They truly are. But yeah, yeah you hardcore with, with rockabilly, with sort of ska stuff. There was Everything was accepted for the first few years. And it was a lot of fun. You know, not a lot of clubs. And the gay bars were great because they were wide open to anything new. And so, you know, Brother Ed said, oi, come on down here. They'd be playing some fun stuff. So, you know, why not? Yes. And, and then about, I don't know, 83 is when things finally started opening up. You know, we got the Metropolis and then the Great Door after that. But they got kind of oppressive with the anti-teen dance ordinance. I don't know what the hell that was all about. Because there was hardly ever any trouble, man. It just, it became a scapegoat. Oh, kids got a skateboard. Well, <laughs> That's like a black boy with a hoodie today. Clearly, you're bad because you have that item. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. It was really, you know, they'd, they'd say it was a riot because somebody would resist arrest. So, stand come to clubs and whack, 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 and yes. oh god, yeah, it's, they got crazy for a while. I think it calmed down when we all started playing fewer all ages shows and more actual bars. But uh, yes, Seattle's yeah. um, accepting, and then again, not. So it was, a, it was sort of a, every, anything goes at the ground level, but a little higher up things weren't as accepted as for that way. You know, college radio was cool, but uh, the mainstream was still, I guess as hardcore for them would be maybe Devo or XTC, you know, nothing against those groups. I love them both. In fact, I've seen them and like, actually see, I was like, they were fun as hell, man. They really were. Amazing. But, yeah. Yes. So then how does this. Seattle's uh, unique. It's a unique place. So then, how does how does the how does Bam Bam sort of form? Because is it Tina and and um, is it Martin who who was sort of the t- yeah, Tommy? Tommy, <clears throat> well, Tommy was uh, the it was Tommy's band really. Uh, Tommy had been in a band called Sex Therapy, and he uh, left rather unceremoniously, shall we say, <laughs> and was determined, in his words, <clears throat> to start a band where he had more say in the direction and writing. So he put out an ad looking for. Uh, a bassist and a drummer, and I answered, and amongst others, apparently, I, I had no idea how many did. He said quite a lot. 
He right. drilled the shit out of me and music and music and music. When I finally met Tina, though, it was a totally different story. She didn't want to hear nothing about music. She wanted to know about me as a person, you know, my family and what's your wife like? How's your son? What do you guys do at holidays and that? So we became friends very, very quickly as a result of that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so then the band were formed quite quickly. Yeah, we formed, um, if you want to call it that, because it wasn't really a band. First, it was just Tommy and Tina and myself. And we would just start, you know, literally writing like five, six hours a day, six, seven days a week. I mean, literally, that was what all we did. We had no life. But <clears throat> without a drummer, it's, by the way, it's a lot easier to see the warts. You know, when you got Matt Cameron or somebody bashing or Tom Anderson back there, you might not hear that little not quite right thing. But for three months, four months, just the three of us, half the time just lying on the floor, scribbling and messing around but. Martin and I would be playing a riff and kind of twerking it out and Bell would shout on a lyric here or there or maybe scribble a few things and go, oh, I don't know, I'll try this. After a while, yes. we uh, picked Matt up. And then it became actual songs. It started uh, really coming together, but it was so different. Everything would be different. You know, one day we'd be playing ska, next day we're playing like sludgy metal. It was a very different uh, thing going on. We're right in the center of all this shit. We didn't even know what we were doing. That's what um, one of our sound men was saying a couple months back. Laughing about it, too, he was. Yes. But it was uh, <laughs> it was pretty exciting because when we finally, you know, it wasn't even going to be Bam Bam at first. That was after a few months when Tommy uh, came in after sort of a break. And he had this shit-eating grin, for lack of a better description. And says, what do you guys think of the name Bam Bam? And I don't think Matt and I were that fond of it, to be honest. At first, we got to look at each other like, eh, it's kind of poppy, isn't it? Whatever. But it was his band, really. Yes. It's uh, definitely uh, everything. Uh, well, I liked the, the democracy that was going on in the early years because it was truly a band where all three of us were literally riding on the same level. But then it kind of started becoming more of a, the Tommy and Tina show about us when, you know, after I'd left. But was, uh, Tina says her favorite Bam Bam moment was we were playing, oh God, I think a long time ago, maybe it was Curses, and Tommy stops. He goes, wait, what are you playing there? And I showed him, and he goes, well, that's not what I showed you. So, well, yeah, I know, but that's what I play. And all Bell just falls over on her ass laughing. 30 <laughs> years later, she brought that up, and that was my favorite Bam Bam moment. Yeah. Yes. I think that's what made Tommy better, though. And I told him that. I said, my challenge in you brings you up better as a guitarist. Because I started as a guitarist and switched to bass. So I would play... I don't like root note bass. I like playing a riff, you know? Yes. Uh, it was a lot more challenging for him, but it also brought him to that level. Martin was insanely brilliant on guitar. He was a bit of an asshole of a person, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But brilliant guitarist. And you want to know who did the first weird tunings and down tuning and all that in Seattle? It was a guy named Tommy Martin. Right. Everybody talked about the Melvins. We love the Melvins. They opened for us in our very first Seattle show in May of 84. Chris Hanzik, our was producer of, uh, for both of us, you know, from uh, Reciprocal and CZ Records. Yes. <clears throat> and so in then... Hanzik's words, they gave us all of 12 minutes that night. So they were playing like, you know, minor threat, like thrash blast. And we're going from, 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 from. So we love them. They perfected it perhaps. But Martin actually kind of created that sludgy down tuning shit that Seattle later became known for. Mm, interesting. So then, did you ever get signed to a label at this day? Were you signed to any particular label? Because did you record in, was it Reciprocal Recording Studios? Yeah, yeah. We, we, we were the first band they did. 
the very first uh, Chris ever worked with was us. Um, problem was, well, we did about an album's worth of, uh, album and a half, I'd say. Uh, Hadzik said about, you know, eight or nine sessions. That sounds about right. But for some damn reason, Tommy and him could not get along. Right. They were button heads and locking horns, you know, producer uh, rivalry, which I've not seen between others to the degree that these two had. It was weird. Yeah, Tommy was brilliant, but he needed a little bit shining on his people skills because he kind of fired Chris unceremoniously and without even telling the rest of us. And I guess it insulted him to the point that, uh, well, as you probably know, we're not on deep six and ground zero um, and probably... Well, I don't know. I'm not going to say what the other one is. It's irrelevant now, but it, w- it should have been on the damn thing. But it took a while for Chris to come forth. For years, they would only kind of chuckle and hint. And because he worked with later, Tommy joined Colin Sick. And, you know, that was where Tina, when she died, she was preparing to join us, too. That took a good year just to talk her into working with Tommy again. <laughs> and Om Jari was going to join us. And uh, Matt and Tom both were going to drum. Right. And unfortunately, that didn't, uh, that didn't happen. But, uh, God. Yes. I, I, I can only imagine if that could have happened. You know, that would have been fun. That would have really been something. God. Yeah. So, because so, you've got these recordings, you've got a kind of a compilation album out, and then you've got these demos. So yeah. were these all made during that kind of few few yes. years? And were you in the band? At yeah, the- they, all of them were 83, 84. We would get a little bit of interest from record labels, and their problem was they couldn't understand um, that America was, in fact, yes, ready for a beautiful black girl to front a rock band. In America's mind at that time, a black girl should sing uh, hip-hop or soul or be a diva. She's a pop singer at most, but to front a hard rock or punk band, wow, that's just unheard of. You know, it, it it was bullshit. It really was. I don't understand why... So uh, we didn't uh, we didn't have a label. We uh, put it out on our own, and we were sure that we were going to get signed to the Ground Zero. We had uh, Adam Burke was our video director, and he completed the video totally and said, "Screw it, we'll put it out anyway." So we did. Yes, we um, weren't signed, though had been talked to, and apparently uh, got in a fight with a couple labels too after I'd left. I, I left in '85, so I missed most of the jolly fun. <laughs> Um, Bam Bam didn't get signed until about two years ago. Actually, I kind of signed them on Buttocks Productions because I started putting out stuff, you know. I got everything published after all these years back in, oh, God, about 208 or about 209 or 10 when Tommy and I started working together again. Right. Yeah, yeah that was some interesting uh, meetings on the, getting songwriting credits worked out from 30 years prior. But I put them on Buttocks Productions. We got digital stuff out. And then the uh, Chicago label, uh, Bric-a-Brac. Now, Bric-a-Brac, uh, they just do the Villains album. They didn't sign the band as a whole or the whole of our, our uh, catalog. I'm not sure. I, I can't really say right at this point who we're talking to because I'm not supposed to. They got me gagged big time here. It's annoying as hell, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> but no, uh, in short story long, no, we didn't get a label offer, and we bloody should have because it's like every damn band in that town did accept this. It was kind of embarrassing. Then I realized, oh, that's right. We're assholes. No wonder. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's only uh, partially chuckled because he, Tommy was famous for his, Chris said, burning bridges before he even crossed them. And again, uh, he was brilliant with a big fat B. I mean, literally the first guy what was doing the down tuning shit. Well, maybe Chris Newman too, you know, the Portland guys, you know, Portland don't get enough nod. The Wipers and Napalm Beach and later Dead Moon. There's three groups that you definitely want to give a nod to, yeah. 
Right. Big thinking nod. Correct. We are very close with Chris Newman, particularly on Napalm Beach. But Greg Sage, man, there's your daddy right there. You know, Portland. Without them, who knows what Seattle would have been like. That's we interesting. We did a lot of shows with Napalm Beach, particularly. Yeah. But yeah, Tommy Martin, he's the guy that was doing the heavy tuning and constantly, man. It seems every time you see shows of us, I've got a different cabinet set up, you know? Like, good God, Martin. Yeah, it's slow down. Drove our roadie, our guitar tech crazy because he, we, in those days, we only had a couple of guitars each, right? So you'd write down, okay, the set list relative and okay, you need, uh, whatever the Rick for this, 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 and bring out the I bend on this and okay, and then bring the Rick back, Rick back, tune down the T sharp flat, you know, ah, 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 and you have to tune in the middle of shows, you know, two or three times. It was really kind of cruel. That would have <laughs> a lot that... easier later when. You know, logging guitar. Okay, here's my D flat. Oh, here, here's my drop D and a half, whatever, you know. Excellent. Excellent. Dave is a good guy. He's yes. That does sound amazing. But then, I mean, so you've done all these recordings. Oh, yeah. Can you remember what was your experience of World of Your Future? Because that's a that's kind of a an amazing song that you put together. Can you remember how that came together? Well, you know, that's one of the first times I used a pick in the middle of midstream we'd already finished the song at when we recorded and tommy goes well you want you to try with a pick just this once and whatever turns out it it worked brilliantly i love the way it just sort of stands aside world of your future is um um that's some of tina's coolest lyrics too where she's talking about um basically screw it tell this guy to fuck off you know and was in the middle eight where she says, I've got to break out. I've got not to break down. Held judged against the fires of sin. I've been singed, but not quite destroyed. Like, oh, that girl, man, she could write. Yes. She's brilliant. She was. So she's basically telling this guy, I don't want to be a part of your world in the, in, in the future, you know. Talking about, you know, uh, your, your hang-ups and your problems. She goes, ah, it's your children. That's not my concern. It's your children's sorrows. <laughs> yeah, she was, uh, she was a sweet, sweet lady, but you didn't want to piss her off. I mean, seriously. I, I, Tommy, um, bless, God love the man. Seriously, he's a brother to me, and I, uh, I think I've been with him longer than anyone. Uh, no one else could take him as long as I could. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> oh, God, I, I lost my train of thought now. Shame on me. I, see, that's him. He's coming back to haunt his old mate. Yeah, and, uh, yes. He was a sweet guy. He really was, you know, hard to work with. He would bring the best out in somebody, you know. Yeah. Bell was good at that. I used to say, yeah, Tina brought the best out of me, and Tommy would accept nothing less. Amazing. Because after all, you know, Bam Bam was a band, to be sure, particularly the first couple of years. But everything that was written by myself, by Tina, by Matt, yeah, we wrote it, but Martin had to approve it. Right. Get in. It, it may have been Bell and Martin, but it was Bell and Martin. It was his band. <laughs> so Martin did. wrote, you know, Bell, we helped her with the lyrics and she helped us with the, with the sound, as it were. She couldn't play guitar, so she'd do, we'd tease her with this kind of like this finger scolding motion that she'd use that she'd go, hey, instead of going da 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 da, how about you go da 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 or whatever? And we'd like, oh, sorry, hon, uh, uh, we, we can't check that because, like, you're not uh, doing proper air guitar and, uh, uh, that's how betty davis used to instruct her band by the way she um didn't play guitar she'd just say hey go da 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 instead of do do you know people give you shit about 
Well, she didn't play guitar. How can you say she wrote this music? It's like, uh, here's how she wrote this music. Da-da, da-da-da-da. You know, <laughs> come on. And, you know, we helped her with the words, whatever. You know, a band is that. It's a band. It's a conglomerate of ideas coming together if it's being done right. Yes. And for the first couple of years in Bam Bam, that's, that's the way it was. Yes, absolutely. And I felt bad uh, how it became, but I'm glad I came back and, you know, was able to reconnect with them again. And, oh, so close to being able to get in the studio. We were in the studio, in, in fact, um, working on, we called it Six Stuff. And Tina and I were writing the stuff that was going to be the Bam Bam stuff. And supposedly we were going to go out and be like, okay, called it Sick, comes out and plays, you know, whatever, five, six, seven. And then Bam Bam comes out and plays a couple with, you know, the band. And then Bells, who felt up to it, would come out and sing a couple more. But, uh, yeah, and she went and died on us. Oh, yes. And just yeah, the I, other... That was yeah, heartbreaking. I, I could imagine. Just another track, Ground Zero, Ground Zero. How did that sort of come about? Mm-hmm. What was the inspiration for that particular track? Polaris submarines with large weapons of nuclear tips. <laughs> well, yeah, three miles from Ground Zero. We live three miles across Puget Sound from Bangor Submarine Base. You know, and um, it was that Tommy's original concept, but Bell fleshed it out. Of course, we all—that's how we worked. Um, incidentally, um, when she says "doing time with Stevie and Frank," I'm Stevie, and Frank is Matt Cameron. So there's your your trivia for the day. Ooh. Mm. Yeah, it was about uh, nuclear war and not being too thrilled uh, when the sub comes back from blowing Russia or whatever up. Uh, we're not exactly going to be going, yay, welcome home. <laughs> you know? uh, we were stupid enough, naive enough to go to the damn base to film the video. And we broke into, uh, we, went, we got through the second gate and we're just starting to unload the camera gear when the Marines MP showed up with hands on guns, but not drawn. Now, where'd that be today? They'd have probably either killed us or arrested us and nicked our gear and all that. But and now, now they Adam was terrified because he was a film student and it wasn't his camera, it was the schools. Right. And these guys all showing up with their guns and their scary ass looking uniforms. It was actually quite cool. They told us, Oh, yeah, I'll just uh, see over there where that whatever driftwood is. Anywhere beyond that, y'all can film this all you want. It only made about maybe seven, ten seconds of the video's final cut, but there is a moment where you can see the base right behind Bell. But, you know, we were kind of pushed away to the point where you couldn't see the subs. You could just see a couple destroyers. So, but yeah, that was kind of cool. Getting thrown off in base and not being arrested for it. Yes. <laughs> Ain't no way in hell they do that now. We'd, our asses would be in serious trouble. Man, we were so stupid. We truly didn't think what we were doing was that bad. We were that dumb. You know, you go through one gate and that's fine. But now we're climbing over the second we drove through into Adam's little Camaro. That could have yes. been unpleasant. That could have, yes, that could have. <laughs> they, like I say, they were pretty nice, actually. Yes, well, that's so, good. Yeah, that was a ground zero, and um, that one was going to be the big hit and all this shit, but uh some reason, uh, Tommy and Chris just couldn't get along. I don't understand. You know, he, <laughs> Tommy would never tell me the whole story of that. You know, Like I said, he and I were very, very close for many years, and I think I probably worked with him longer than anybody, including the bell. Right. Uh, we had a weird, we had a weird brothership. This uh, um, well, Jessica, you know, Tina's mom said, "Y'all are the perfect example of a yin and yang." <laughs> Except the way she described it, she made me seem the calmer. The other one was oh shit. Wasn't always the case, frankly. It really wasn't. As, as Tommy could bend a few people, but yeah, I had my. Uh, my moments, I suppose. <laughs> yes, this, this, these things happen. So then, how did you? Yes, then and then, how's how does the story for the band 
finish for you at this stage? Well, when we had, uh, you know, the ground zero, all the recording and the video done, and then we did the, uh, the villains EP, well, like I said, it was supposed to be an album, but the money didn't come and the answers didn't come as we hoped. So we're like, eh, I think we'll put it out ourselves. Trouble was, a um, little confusion on the artwork, to say the least. Hansik didn't get credited as producer, and I didn't get my songwriting credits. And I was incensed, to say the least. That was uh, the catalyst for my, my leading and CZ not signing us. Right. Um, uh, first thing when Bric-a-Brac and I started talking, I said, uh, that back cover is going to be fixed or it ain't coming out because this cover is what caused me to leave and Chris not to sign us because we didn't get our due credit. You know, it's um, all good now. You know, we amended these things long ago, but at that time and it was starting, it'd been, a, you know, coming on a couple of years almost. And Tommy was starting to, uh, I don't know, get sort of uh, dictatorial. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't yes. as open and friendly as it had been prior, and and in fact, when him when Matt left, it was sort of a, a standoff between the two of them, and you know, um, Matt wasn't going to take it. He buggered, and I he implied to me that he'd fired him, which you know that, that was kind of not very cool. So mm-hmm. you know, eventually everything works itself out, and I do love the man. I will always always talk shit of him as quickly as I will tell you what a brilliant mug he was, because he was a brilliant mug. Yeah, a bit of a dick. <laughs> so I love him. He's my brother. Yes. Um, we used to call just... our songs our children, and yeah, you know, we probably written two dozen songs together at least, and in, in both called in sick and in Bam Bam. Yes, uh, that was kind of fun because when Tommy joined uh, called in sick, we were a punk band, um, three piece. Myself, uh, Tom, Tom, the second Bam Bam drummer, and my son on bass. So you know, it was. Almost bam bam, especially when Tommy joined there about uh, 2010, I think was when he popped in. Uh, it was a lot of fun, but uh, Tina coming in that band, God, that would have been awesome. Yeah, she helped me with a couple of songs from that era too. A non-existent girlfriend, and uh, was it the, not all I've learned is necessary? And we had a couple of her songs that one of those assholes threw out after she died. I cannot believe I'd done that. What was the song? Um, Did you say they checked out a? Um, well, we never finished them. They got thrown away after she died. The songs that her and I worked on in the later years that did get put out was Non-Existent Girlfriend and um, one called Not All I've Learned is Necessary, which we have printed off. We got the Hammond B3 on, on, oh, God, three tracks on that album. We got, he used to play with Prince, Janet Jackson, Alan White. And then he got stuck with us. Poor old Mark Cardenas. <laughs> That was a lot of fun having keyboards. I hadn't worked with keyboards since I was like 14 or 15. And it was a, it added a really cool element. Hired him for one and he stayed for three. It was Jesus. really a, it was a fun session. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Fastback was a fun studio. Uh, you can go online and check out Non-Existent Girlfriend. That's what Bella and I were working on at the time of her death. And she's featured, as is my wife, Sandy Scandals, and my daughter and daughter-in-law and my cousin. It's it's mostly the family. Uh, most of those beautiful ladies are my daughters and foster daughters and sister-in-law and wife and uh, Miss Tina Bell. Blimey, that is amazing. Yeah, I'm a, there's, yeah, there's, yeah. A long, there's a lot to do research. So then when you leave the band or you know it doesn't you're no longer part of it what then happens to the to to the next you know part of your story well i kind of backed out because you know it was time for me to be a dad i had to give my uh cameron's i was praising him for uh, being able to take his family on the road and he said oh dude you got me beat you had the nerve 
to walk away from it all for your family. And I said, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I was, you know, basically, yeah, I got out for a while. I had a couple of uh, kids. Um, a few of them actually got three kids and a couple of fosters. And then about the time, oh, about 2001 or so, that's when I started doing uh, called in sick with my oldest boy, you know, Ryan. And back Ryan used to kind of be with Bam Bam. Him and TJ used to have to hang out in the, uh, you know, we, um, some folks used to talk to a shit about us sweetly like that. We were the bandit, the parents with kids who also have a band, you know, because three of the four of us were parents. And in those days, I guess we was the only ones. And, and uh, yeah, like with Sledge opened it with them once TJ got sick and, and, and Joe couldn't believe it, but Tina said, I got to go home. My boy's sick. He's like, whoa. But yeah, Damn. that's another reason why perhaps we were sort of on the outside. Cause you know, we, we had children, but, it uh, it kind of helped keep my family together because my wife became the manager. My cousin Dave's running sound and taking our pictures and sometimes engineering our demos. You know, it was a family affair. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, my son-in-law sang on a couple of tracks. Yeah. So God, it keeps you in in goodness when you you know you don't get in trouble when you, you know with groupies when your wife's uh, on the road with you. <laughs> no, this is this is totally true. So then during the Oh, the, so that was the late 80s. Then the 90s come along, you mm-hmm. get your life together. And then when do you sort of reconnect with Tina again? Late 90s, I bump into Tommy. And he's playing uh, more trippity, kind of almost uh, hypnotic-y, gravy stuff. And kind of surprised us. I went there with one of our old crew members, Dave, and, and Sandy Scandals. And we had a great reunion and all, but... It was it was troublesome when I asked him about Tina and, and he just sort of shoved eh, 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 eh. and I go, Well that seems kind of odd. I knew they weren't together anymore, but I thought he would have shown a, a wee bit of respect for her. But you know, yeah, it was about ninety nine or so and kind of in and out contacts, nothing real serious till about oh eight or so, and that's when we started deciding maybe we should kinda try this stuff again and Tina was at that time, you know, on her own down in Vegas and I kinda got uh Ooh, encouraged by the family to perhaps, you know, look in on her. And I ended up kind of becoming her caretaker, caregiver, manager, I guess you could call it. And yes. it really, it enriched me as much as her. It really did. Cause I, uh, we both were insomniacs. We, I'd get, if my phone rang at two in the morning, I'd leaped up in joy. Oh God, that's my bell. I gotta get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, just yak about the old days, writing songs, whatever, just life in general. It's right. very rewarding. I'm probably yes. the only guy in the world who's gone to Vegas numerous times and yet never gambled. No, no, I, I'm, I'm the same actually, but I do like the vibe. So, why did Tina go to, to to Vegas for? I think she was running away from the world, her family, right. and herself. Frankly, she uh, really uh, she quit quite abruptly. Uh, the band was getting ready to head down to Dogfish Studios in Portland to uh, work with Drew Cannon. He did some uh, Sound Gardens early work. Uh, fop or screaming live or both, I can't remember. At any rate, literally, this thing is getting loaded. Tommy goes, something like, uh, well, get stuff, Bill. We gotta get on. I ain't going. Look, no, no. Oh, real funny. No, I'm in. I ain't going. Fuck this. I ain't doing this no more. And she meant it. And she literally sat down, crossed her arms, and I ain't going. Band went down there and started working out, thinking maybe we get a few things done and show comments. She didn't. So they started rearranging their songs to three piece and. They, Drew got a call from Bob Mould's people at the time, and the, some weather-related incident made it so his West Coast uh, jaunt was 
without an opening act. Like, uh, does he know anyone? And he goes, well, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so that started the three-piece instrumental Bam Bam of, from, uh, oh, I guess from 90 to 93 is when they were together. Right. And then about 93, Brad from Sweaty Nipples joined up and they became Mommy. Brad's a great guy. Right. Okay. He's a great singer. Yes. But, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a weird thing. In a way, it kind of fucked the other band up because, you know, two groups that are... Comp- well, first of all, Bam Bam has been used about 15 times. Although, Sister Carol, uh, I think hers was about 83, and that's about when, when Tommy decided to name the band Bam Bam. But since then, you got one in UK, you got one in Mexico, and I think another one popped up in San Francisco. <laughs> Probably another cover band somewhere like Ella in Louisiana somewhere. But... Uh, and Chris Westbrook, I think the guy's name was, also went by that. Tommy should have challenged him, but eh, it is what it is. Yes, this <laughs> does happen, doesn't it? So then, What's in um, a name, right? <laughs> so what were you potentially working on, you know, in sort of 2010? Had you started sort of working again, did you say, with Tina at that stage? Well, we we had a couple where I, I called us Nick. Um, let's see, we had what an album, an EP, a couple EPs actually, and about a handful of singles at the time. And Tina was, um, uh, she had some challenges, you know, some uh, bipolar and kind of schizophrenic issues. And I was working on everything from doctor appointments to you know sending her groceries. I, I was in uh, culinary school. They taught me uh, nutritionalists as well as how to kill people with my butter puff, you know. Yes. Hey, we'll show you how you're killing them. Yeah. So that helped me design her diet and stuff. And the family was really pleased to see, you know, that somebody who actually cared for her was caring for her. <laughs> and uh, I, I still feel I let her down. They say, oh, you gave us some more years with us. So whatever. She was a wonderful lady. And it was an honor to hang out with her. And besides, my wife, her, uh, Sandy and her were pals from way back. And I'd bring my family down there and bell kick shit. She'd throw me out. Girl talk. You guys get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> It was um, it was basically uh, the three-piece band took a little bit of a break. You know, I had some surgery, and, and when I started getting better, we started back, heading back to the studio again, and we had a couple tra- three tracks done. And I'd been already, you know, working with Tommy, you know, salvaging Bam Bam stuff and getting uh, things put together, getting all published and properly up on the website, et cetera. And he heard a couple of our new songs, and he's like, oh, I was so, I was so darling seeing this dumbass almost shy, like kind of afraid to ask me, wait, uh, do you mind if I sit in on a session? I'm like, God, are you fucking kidding? See, I'm an okay guitarist. But Martin's fucking brilliant. Okay. Yeah. And this is a guitar type song. You know, he ended up turning a Neil Young song into like this Pink Floyd extravagant thing. It was, it was weird. Cause we went from a punk band to a off grunge metal band overnight. It was a bizarre uh, change for us, but it was yeah. a fun period, you know? And then and it wasn't as um, insane as the punk days, you know. No, absolutely. <laughs> but that—that that was the only other kind of band you've really been in called in sick, other than Bam Bam. That that did anything? Yeah, yeah. I was in I was in Baby Jasmine and oh, well, a couple of other glam bands, Fox, when I was a kid, you know, teenage boy. But you know, high school dances and local, uh, um, you know, halls and that sort of thing. But. Nothing serious until I got you know moved to Seattle and you know did Bam Bam. First couple of years I didn't really play any bands. I just you know kind of getting to know the town. But uh, yeah, Seattle, like I said, in the early '80s, the scene was wide open. There was so much stuff going on, so many different groups that were accepted at a relative same level. 
And I yes. wasn't like uh, somebody was considered above another. And, and it was cool to be uh, able to play a, a bar that, say, the Ramones or, or Iggy Pop had, had played the week prior or maybe get an opening slot with, you know, somebody like, um, you know, Sonic Youth or whatever. So it was kind of cool that the bars had relative name bands in them because, well, there wasn't a lot of places to play in Seattle. <laughs> it's an isolated town. It's hours north of San Fran and a few more south of, of Vancouver and several, many, many more west of Chicago. So it's kind of an isolated little area, really. Yes, tricky. It's a surprise and anything that happens there. Yes. And the weather. Don't forget that, too. You know, we spend a lot of time indoors, you know, smoking weed, drinking coffee and strong beer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And Washington was the first of two states to legalize. So, yeah. Yes. It was probably... So did you set up? Buttocks Production. Is that your company? Yeah, that's my company. Yeah. That's your I company. Thought, uh, uh, it was sort of like with Tommy with uh, wanting to be in a band where he was in control of the music. I thought, well, you know, if we're going to have music out, I want to be in control of the publishing. And I'm glad I did because it can become more lucrative than uh, just writing. <laughs> yes, I would imagine. It's pretty nice. So when did, when and it gives me the control. It gives you some, at least you can, yes, you can, you can take responsibility. So when did you set that up? 2002, right? Out then, two, one or two, yeah, yeah. I've got about 88 songs published from four artists, I guess you could say, three and a half artists, but I'll say four. Fantastic, <laughs> yes. And was yeah, it all um, the Bam Bam and all the Carlin Sick, yeah, Buttocks Productions, yeah. Fantastic. And does that mean then? Did you start? When did you start thinking? God, I've got to archive all our material on for Bam Bam. Did you? Was that kind of part uh, of the reason? doing it that was definitely that's been a motive for mine for some time almost died doing it as a matter of fact um when we had our fire that was scary shit that was weird funny thing is is the demos that not the demos but the master tapes that survived the flood at tommy's he didn't entrust them to me and a few years later i'm building my house out here and so i'm staying at my in-laws ranch and they had a fire in their main storage building and uh, we almost lost, um, Jesus, I had the videos, the original uh, negatives to the first few photo sessions, all the masters, including the ones that had been transferred already. And basically, uh, yeah. you know, you see those waves underneath, you know, they get the camera and the wave crashes over the camera from under the water. Yes. It, the fire looked like that when the backdraft happened, except instead of blue and white, it was orange and black rolling over me. But I had actually fallen down because I was getting smoke inhalation and pat fell to my knees, which actually was lucky because when a fire went above me, I was well below it. <laughs> Being weird, and everything was so surreal. I had two crates of Tina Bell T-shirts, and they were dripping like candles. It was like this weird nightmare, and then I could see this little spirit of blue behind me, and I knew that was a blue sky. So I grabbed the the you know the or the master uh, transferred actually the digital and the videos because I happened to fall on that stage where I was in the right area. Yes. <laughs> Grabbed that thing and I ran, I ran, tw- just staggered towards that little blue light. Just as I got to the door of the refrigerator, I had had like six cases of soda in there, blew up, and that gave me that little extra push out the damn door. And then the flames tickling my behind. I got shrapnel and busted arm and some, you know, scorched here and there. But hey, I survived and I saved them all. <laughs> a fireman challenging me at one point. I said, "Listen, dude, you're either going to come in there and help me, or you're going to chase me as I go to get them." But we're getting them fucking tapes. And so he, Rawr. so because the second building was just starting to catch, and they had a fireman standing guard there. 
<laughs> I told him, I'm going in there with you or without you. You can chase me or you can help me. So here's one to the firefighters. He helped me. Yeah. They're music, uh, you know, heroes. Yeah. <laughs> My God. So you, you grabbed the archive. Terrifying. That, that must have. Um, yeah. I'm kind of shaking now. Every time I tell that story, I get a little bit. <laughs> yes. I would imagine. Weird shit. Anybody who's ever been in a fire, I bet I just give them a shudder because there ain't nothing like surviving a fire, dude. No. It's no. scary fucking shit. And my daddy was a firefighter too when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, yes. That was so, weird. That was weird. But, you know, I'm glad of it because, you know, all these years I've been trying to make sure that, you know, I, well, this all is because of a promise I made to Tina back in 2009 or so. I mean, for years while she was still with us, I was working on this, you know, trying to get her son to, you know, maybe do something on her and, you know, people to remember who she was. She never felt sorry for herself, by the way. Hers was a pragmatic wish to understand how come folks didn't accept us. You know, she didn't like the thought of color or, you know, misogyny. It, it bothered her a lot. And uh, to be directly affected by something that she found to be so irrelevant in life, it ate her up. It really did. And like I said, she didn't like, oh, poor me. They didn't like me. It was more like, God, Scotty, we kicked ass and I was good. Why didn't they accept me? You know, it was a very pragmatic uh, wish for understanding rather than a plead for pity. Yeah. So please don't pity her, you guys. Love her for how great she was because she would prefer that. And uh, I would too. Yeah. Yeah. But then, <laughs> but then, you know, you lost Tommy as well a few years ago, which must have. Um... Oh, yeah, that was a real heartbreaker, too. I mean, Bill crushed me. Tommy, um, God, they just emptied me out, finished me off, I guess. But I knew he'd been sick for some time. You know, I'd been over, he'd been trying to open that enough for the speed of sound. That was his dream for his lifetime, was this wonderful studio. And, and it was starting to be realized we had some pretty good investments, including, you know, actor Eric Roberts and the Ventures and some of these guys. So, you know, it was getting some stuff going on and it was, it was going to be an absolute top rate. It was not going to be, as he called it, it was going to be a destination studio. And, uh, yeah. And he got, you know, cancer and he'd had some problems with painkillers and such. So they wouldn't give him uh, what he needed to, you know, to relieve him. And so he turned to the street and, you know, got some fucked up stuff and it killed him. Oh, blimey. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. Heroin, um, Bam Bam was a weird, I mean, every band has its abuses to a point, I guess, you know, in the early days of called them sick, we called it K-Days, so because they were crazy, and we were doing cocaine, it was punk, <laughs> K-Days, ah. and that's another, I just walked away from that shit, too, it's like, you know, I don't understand why people let these things, the only reason I know when I last did call, is because it was the end of that year's tour, <laughs> you know, you keep a date, when you last had a drink or a smoke, it's still got its grips on you, man. Let it go and just drop it behind you. Yes. But Tommy, um, he couldn't get relief. And unfortunately, you know, he got, um, I don't know if it's that fentanyl or some bullshit bad thing. And first they thought he died from a heart attack. Turned out, man, you know, he would have, we'd have lost him anyway. I mean, he was pretty ill with um, colon cancer and such, but and he was in a lot of pain and drinking a heck of a lot. And, you know, I knew I was over there, well, not the last time, but second to last time I think I saw him. And he did a hair of the dog shot. And that's something I've never, you know, to me, it's like when you get drunk the night before, you didn't get up and start drinking the next morning. And when you do coke at night, you don't keep doing it when the damn sun comes up, you know? There are certain parameters of surviving this kind of a lifestyle, guys. 
And those of us have been, okay, the last year at the, uh, the tribute show, I remember talking to Cameron about how uh, we're down in the ready room, you know, and I was like, anything's different these days. No weed, no Coke, no nothing here. Instead of beers and drinks, there's bottled water and fruit trays and shit. Hi, it's it's different, yeah. But then we're that's why we're still here at sixty, and everyone else is not. And I'm yes. not saying it's their fault because the rest of us were just as bad, perhaps uh, not, maybe always, but perhaps a little luckier. I don't know. I I was a little. One of my smart moments, I think, was knowing that heroin would kill me. I did not fuck with it because I was, I liked um, being numb. You know, <laughs> I thought I'm gonna like that too much. I better not do it. I've never <laughs> done it. I mean, I had done morphine and had the artificial, whatever, the Dilaudid and shit, you know, most of the time from surgeries, but I never understood that. I, I, Oxycontin sucks. I don't see why I didn't want to do that again. Now, we there's something proper. I am. I don't mean to talk anything positive on, on substance abuse because it ain't a good thing for anyone. Uh, it's I, My point was those of us who are still here managed to get a relative handle or at least a step back and take a look at ourselves and see what the hell was doing to us and our families. And, yes, yeah. I guess I did. Um, did you say your partner's called Sandy? Yeah. Sandy scandals. Yeah. And did you, did she sort of say, did she keep you or did your family just make sure that you didn't veer too far off the, the, the beat? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She, uh, she made sure that uh, so that's what she, she was manager for calling sick and, you, you know, not that I would be bad, but you know, you behave when she, you know, <laughs> went ball wife. You know. <laughs> That's, I don't, I, she's, she and I are our partners. We've been friends since we were kids. Our daddies actually went to school together, in fact. Right. So we've so, known one another for some time. And yeah, she's always been a big part of it. If you look at um, some of our pictures, you'll see her. Uh, well, like the famous thing where uh, everybody talked about the uh, time when Bell smashed that guy in the head with the mic stand. Sandy's in the pit. We got a picture about 10 seconds after that happened. You can see her jumping, kind of looking, leaning sideways as Tommy's leaping off the stage to go after the guy. Yeah, pretty crazy guy. Yes. Yeah, yeah. She's, uh, well, and, and, you know, the whole of my family, you know, it it relatively uh, legitimizes you and gives you a different perspective. You know, I mean, Bob Dorr, one of our most beloved old roadies, hey, Bob, uh, unfortunately for dear Bobby, he would always draw the babysitter short straw. And end up having to take care of TJ and Ryan. <laughs> like, wait a minute, I don't like moving gear necessarily, but these little shits really. He does. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's always the. So look, just lastly, I mean, if you if you could have whispered something to your sixteen year old self who was starting out in this interesting and um, murky world, sometimes do you, is there anything that you would have thought? Yeah, I'd have just said of said a couple of things, even if that person wouldn't have kind of taken any note. That's that's something we actually were discussing about like two, three days ago. That's really fucking weird. Y'all just give me a chill. <laughs> uh, Sam and I were talking about that. I said something the effect of that very deal. Like if I could go back to those days when I was about to leave, and what would I tell myself? Stay with Cameron. <laughs> Matt and I, you know, I pulled off the music completely, and I didn't not only just not see Tom and Tina, I didn't see Matt or anybody for many years. And when I did bump into all these guys years later, it was like, right, we just, uh, uh, one day later, you know, big hugs. And Matt and I have particularly re- renewed a friendship that, uh, and when we were neighbors when we were in Bam Bam, we used to ride to practice together and shit. 
You know, I remember one time coming out, unloading his gear, and Sandy and Tina were just coming back from the store getting CDs or something. And, you know, the message was the big hit of, you know, Grandmaster Flash. And here's these two pasty-ass white scuddy Irish boys, in a, in, you know, unloading and saying, you know, don't push me because I'm close to the edge. Yeah, with some of these shit. They were laughing. <laughs> the ass. I was like, hey, hey, my point. Oh, God, yeah, it was a lot of fun, but. I like Matt. Matt's a, he's a super cool guy. He is managed to stay pure of heart and self through all the chaos. And I don't think there's a band on a planet of worth or merit that he ain't played with. And he's so bloody humble. He really is. He's so approachable, man. He's an amazing person. He really is. Yes. Great family too. Raised a great kid. And April, I don't really know his daughter, but his wife and son, really cool people. Yeah. That's Matt's quite something. Guy. So, yeah. So, yeah. The he's, been, he's been helping me uh, more than almost anyone. You know, when you, you look at Pearl Jam's anthology, and there he is wearing a Tina Bell T-shirt on the on the cover of the shot. That's seriously coolness. You know, Pearl Jam. You know, they're uh, extremely supportive of us during the tribute thing, letting us use their facility for rehearsing and printing off the T-shirts on their dime and shit for us. It was just they're just super guys. They really are. Yes, amazing. You know, having Stoney and Matt. I say Stone knows back in you know he's with Green River in the old days. And it was quite flattering that he specifically requested one of my songs you know, to be in the band. He wanted to play going to a party, and I thought, oh man, how cool! <laughs> excellent, excellent. Yeah, that was a night I'll never forget. I would imagine. I so does that mean yeah, there's something you're... weird about people like uh, Aaron Jones and you know Fishbones, uh, Kendall Ray, and. You know, obviously Matt and Stoney playing songs that we wrote when we were like kids, basically. It was just such a weird feeling. I was afraid I was going to break down and, okay, like a damn Scotsman. I didn't. I made it through the night. (laughs) until I got home that I finally bust. It was something, man. It really was. It was so cool seeing such honor for her. And maybe they'll put the vid out someday, too, yeah. Yes. So did you, have you you started putting out the the material for... um... God called in sick. That's the question. Mm. Oh yeah, oh yeah. There's some out there. We um haven't done any hard copy presses, any uh, new presses for a while. But digital, yeah, it's still there. You can get a go to uh, like buttocksproductions.com. You know, link to everybody there. And uh, called in sick with you know SIC. Okay. Uh, yeah, we got several singles, and uh, I think there's yeah. You can still get the wide EP, which. <laughs> We actually got a really good reviewer. <laughs> Not that we didn't deserve it. It's just, yeah, it, it was too good. And I thought, oh, this is this is Seth. That fucker, he's he he wrote this. We didn't even tell anybody or put it up for a couple months. So we made sure. Oh, this is actually radio free. Oh, okay, cool. It, it was really um very flattering. It was fucking nice. Yeah. So yeah, there's a few bits out there. They claim we wrote the first new rock riff in 30 years. I'm dyslexic, right? So. For me, the the da 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 made sense, but to them it was ooh a new version of da 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 da. So yeah, check them out. Colin Six, a fun band, and that would have been Tina's. She was set to join in the damn thing. We were already writing new songs for it because Tommy had already joined. Matt and Tom Tom were going to be the drummers, and myself and Om Jari were going to switch back and forth on rhythm and guitar and bass and and. If Belle was enough for singing, Ohm was going to sing her parts while I did the lower parts, you know. So it was a, a win-win situation for everybody because the bands could go out together. And if Belle was enough to play, we wouldn't force her. 
Yeah, that's what I think was the clincher. She really wasn't eager to work with Tommy again. <laughs> Whenever she referred to him as Martin, he knew it wasn't going to be a flattering come up next. You know? yeah. she loved him and he loved her even more. But uh, it was a lot of a lot of passion going both ways in that group. You know, bit too really much. Yes, a bit more, so much. But I, uh, I don't regret it. I don't. I really. I mean, it's been a, a hell of a ride trying to let the world know about you know the promise. I had to keep that promise. I told her. She was a star. The world just wasn't aware of or fully aware of it yet, and that I'd make them aware. <laughs> well, it took me a few years more than I thought, but yes, I mean, she's uh, she always was. It does sound like she you know was. she's she had such a huge impact, huge impact on your life. She's uh, the ripple effects now with groups like you know the Black Tones and Aaron Jones and Shiny Shepherd and Barracks and. You know, some of these newer groups, it just, it, it's really satisfying to get letters from people talking about Todd, if I'd have known about her when I was in school, things have been so much better. Or Om Jaari and uh, Demetra Smith talking about, I used to sneak out, Om particularly, he used to run, not run away, but sneak out of her room to come see us when she was a teenager. And that's pretty damn cool. And I really, really, really dig Om. Yes. She is superwoman. God. Blimey, it's kind of quite emotional, isn't it? Just thinking about all that. It's quite something. So yeah. well, there you go. So what's your... Yeah, well, the band that should have been. <laughs> yes, I know. So close. It's always the way, isn't it? You were probably a bit too early for the... I mean, yeah, there's a yeah. few people I've spoke to who were like, oh, yeah, there was a guy called uh, I don't know, Richard Strange from the Doctors of Madness. He said, oh, we were two, three years too early for punk. But everybody in the audience yeah. formed a punk band and they did really well. But we... Modern we, lovers. We were yeah. modern lovers, yeah. Yeah. So, you, 73, um, you know? Jonathan Richmond, you know? For that matter, I mean, the visionaries are, are, are the amazing ones, but... Well, some people say that of us, but we were kind of just in the middle of something and didn't really, we literally didn't know what we were doing. It was just, you know, Daryl was saying this recently, like you're in the, in the center of this new thing being created all, all around you, but you're just unaware of it because you're at the center of the whirlwind. You know? It wasn't like it was a conscious, hey, look what we're doing. There's something new happening here. It was yeah. just what we did. And you know, uh, Seattle was a weird little town and we all supported one another and that's why it's so frustrating that uh, my dear Tommy, God bless him again, you know, created sort of a, well, like I said, Chris said he burned bridges before he crossed them. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm very proud to have worked with him and Tina, and I'm very pleased that he and I were able to come back and, re, you know, firm ourselves musically. And I think we accomplished some pretty cool things with both bands, really. Yes. Martin and I worked well together. We did. Well, I'm glad it's, you've got all so much. Them. You managed to save your, the archive. And um, yeah, yes, there we go. It's and Dino, uh, Jack and Dino has the masters to uh, the Free Fall from Space album. And he will be, uh, yeah, pretty in that up. It's, and that's the next one. Excellent. Although maybe a single before that. Yeah, yeah. Because we still got an album and a couple of singles and uh, actually several that I've been kind of holding back here and there. Some of them. You know, uh, Father Time gnawed on him a wee bit. The original World of Your Future was actually a fast punk kind of version. A lot of songs are that way. I'm dead. We joke about this is the Nirvana version. This is the Napalm Beach version. You know, we weren't no Nirvana yet. You know, shit, Matt was only a teenager when I first met him. But uh, and he scratched my guitar a little shit. <laughs> <laughs> I still have it. In fact, we call it the Kurt guitar. And probably the only reason I saved it because of that. Well, my son <laughs> used it on Tourist Traps. 
and at least one other on our last session. So it ain't like it just sat gathering dust. He actually played it occasionally. And, and he's got a custom-made Scotty Dunham Mad Creation Boston, you know? Yes. Nice face. Nice. Nice time. Well, look, this has been amazing. Thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. And if you want, I can always um, send you the link, and you can always put it on your web page or your social media page. Yeah, I'd like that. Oh, that I'd like that good. much, yeah. That would be good. That would be yeah, it's good. been another pleasure. But it's been fantastic. Well, thank you again. And um, I'm so pleased we managed to get this together. And yes, we got the technology. God, we're so good at this, aren't we? Um, <laughs> I'll have to send you something on the then, yeah. Yes, it's good. Anyway, is that okay? Thank you for having me. I had a great time. Thanks a lot there. And take care and have a great, great afternoon. I'm going to go to bed. Anyway, thank see you, you later, Scott. Good day too, man. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, good, uh, I guess it's good evening then. Hey, bye-bye. Good evening. Good evening. <laughs> bye. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. That was me in conversation with Scott Ledgerwood. Find out more about life, love, poetry and everything else. Um, indeed. Yes, and uh, if you want to know any more information, I will give you the uh, uh, link to the website. It is basically buttocksproductions.com. But um, yes, it will be in the link below. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.